Hello, and welcome to the Nomiki Show. I am Nomiki Konst, the only one. My grandmother was the first, I'm the second. The only Nomiki Konst. Okay, what is it going to take to hold our elected officials accountable? I mean, like, really accountable. Not canceled, not fired, just accountable to us for the work that they do that affects, you know, our lives. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, all week, watching the powerful presentations of the House impeachment managers, thinking about all those times Donald Trump skated past consequences for egregious actions that may have, probably did, destroy others. And then in the middle of this thought, literally this morning, wham, Governor Andrew Cuomo faces one more scandal. His administration is caught on a call to senators, state senators, New York state senators, admitting that they withheld the real COVID death count at nursing homes. That might actually be a crime A real crime, it is certainly a disgrace. On Twitter this morning, the verdict was in, he's done. But really, how many times have we said that before about Governor Cuomo? How many previous scandals did we think were the end of him? His entire inner circle was convicted and some were sentenced to jail. But he still got through it. And of course, we feel the same way about Donald Trump. So what is it that makes these figures invulnerable? We used to call it Teflon, but scouring off the muck of scandal doesn't even capture the way both Trump and Cuomo carry on without seeming consequence. Maybe Trump won't be able to run again after this impeachment trial, but his party still isn't ready to act against him after all that. And maybe Cuomo won't run again, But will he really face judgment for lying about the deaths of some of our most vulnerable? And that's where I keep going, to the question of truth. All of this, Cuomo's new scandal, Trump's impeachment trial, to my mind, this all comes down to one question. Are we ready to reinvent our politics so we tell each other the truth? Or will we just keep rallying enough support to survive by weaving fantasies and creating phony narratives? Politics is supposed to be about resolving our differences so we can proceed together to face our challenges, to help people. God knows those challenges are huge right now. Millions of people are out of work. Millions are putting their kids to bed hungry. Millions don't have health insurance in the middle of a pandemic and are just accumulating debt, whether it's due to COVID-related medical costs or funerals. People don't know where the rent money will come from tomorrow. And Representative Carol Maloney of New York opened a hearing today on President Biden's $1.9 billion aid package with three words people are hurting. Those are realities, and we can't face realities with the politics of lies, misleading your supporters, tricking them into believing things you know are not true. That is demagoguery. It is the foundation of authoritarianism, concealing the deaths in New York's nursing homes, inciting an attack on the Capitol in which a police officer and four attackers died, These are the results of governance by magical thinking. I confess I'm I'm baffled by how Cuomo has been able to move through every major scandal 
just as so many of us are baffled by how much Trump moved through scandal after scandal and now seems on the verge of surviving what in some former time would have been thought as treason? treason? Seriously, treason. They used to hang people for inciting insurrection. Now we banish them to Mar-a-Lago. And it isn't just Trump weaving falsehoods. His enablers say that they can't convict him because the Constitution does not let them, that the Senate does not have the authority to put him on trial. What? Let's be clear, they made this up. They are creating a phony excuse to avoid telling the truth, which is that they don't want to face the wrath of Trump supporters for convicting their man of what he clearly did. In other words, Republican senators don't want to tell Trump supporters the truth about the lies that Trump told them. We are spiraling down. And at some point, we will have lost so much of our grip on what's real that we won't be able to find our way back. And that is the unvarnished truth. And that is what we have to watch and be concerned about. We have an amazing show for you today. Seriously, it's amazing. It's from Friday. Esperanza Fonseca and Natalie Short are back here. And right after the break, we will talk with Leisha Brooks. She's, of course, an actor and a writer and the sister of our late dear friend, Michael Brooks. She's going to tell us about her special plan to honor his memory and his legacy. Uh, You may have been watching it so far. She's going to talk with us a little bit more about it. We will be right back after the break. I am so honored and so uh, humbled to have my friend Leisha Brooks here today joining us for Femme Friday. Leisha is, of, of course, she's an actor and she's a writer, and she is the sister to our late dear friend Michael Brooks of The Michael Brooks Show, and she's spearheading uh, the Michael Brooks Legacy Project right now, which, if you haven't checked it out, is this beautiful series, and, I, I, and she's going to tell us a little bit more about it, in which... Uh, They have conversations about Michael's legacy uh, with some of the best people that he's interviewed and others, too, that have been influenced or um, relate to his legacy. Leisha, thank you so much for joining us. We're really grateful to have you. Oh, you're on mute. I know, we all. It's like, (laughs) how many hours? <laughs> At least you're not a cat. I, oh my god! I'm I'm used to being in the you know the controlling seat. So you know, as soon as the roles sw- you know switch, you're completely helpless. Um, thanks for I having mean, me. The cat thing to me is to start off on a light note. What? How did that even? Ha- I still can't figure out how that happened. I was just floored that the fellow uh, lawyers. I must hate that colleague so much that like not even this you know cat moment tickled them. Yeah, they were just serious. like so unfazed. Like, like, I, like, I wonder if maybe this had happened before. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And just the um, animated eyes like racing with panic. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like a cat in panic. Yeah. Um, no, it was, I, I was, I didn't know a filter like that existed. And also like, like lighten up guys. It's a funny <laughs> moment. It was beautiful. Yeah. I thought he was lucky. It was a cat. <laughs> Tell me, you could have had a Jeffrey Tubin moment. Exactly. <laughs> so, Alicia, I'm I'm so happy you're here today. I um I'm really grateful that we've gotten to know each other over the last, you know, I guess it's a year now. Like I met you at our live event in March 
of 2020. Um, Mm -hmm. It was our first live event. We just launched the show. We did it. It's our only live event. Uh, We did it in Los Angeles in which um, Michael came out and was one of our guests on stage and was brilliant as usual, but it was like a, like, we all thought it was going to be so much fun. (laughs) And I was like, it sold out and we were expect, I mean, people came, it was amazing, but the room was dark because it was Super Tuesday and Bernie Sanders did not do as well as a lot of people expected. And so, you know, we went backstage, we're like, all right, we've got to make people feel good. But it was hard, man. It was a hard, hard day. Yeah. I, I was I was impressed at how quickly Michael pivoted personally into trying to, you know, okay. You, you know, similar to the article Matt Carp put out many months later in Jacobin kind of outlining, you know, victories, what could have been done better, exactly where things were. I felt like Michael was instantaneously kind of mentally doing that and then choosing to lead with, this this is a big shift this is and i was i was pretty impressed because i personally was just sitting and you know it was all young people and then the only boomers there were you know it's in my experience with the bernie campaign i don't know if if this is like kosher to say or not but you know it's most of the boomers that are involved it's because they need health insurances because they didn't play into the game of of corporate you know criminal greed and it's it's the the it, it was serious uh, stakes. And I remember just looking down the row at, at everyone's face and just thinking like, oh, you know, yeah. this is this is so personal and, and so scary. It was it was I've never done a live event like that before where we go in feeling super excited and, you know, you're just like you can feel people processing things on stage. It's it's like being in a newsroom when like a live event happens in which nobody's ever experienced, whether it's a pandemic or a terrorist attack or a death or something um, profound like that. And, uh, you know, he he, as always, was able to just I don't know, he had something in his 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 like spirit his personality that just was able to kind of take the perspective out out of it and and i think he just recognized as a figure in media as a figure on stage um just guiding force i mean Mm -hmm. even when you're experienced i mean he and so many others myself included had spent five years campaigning for bernie and putting so much hope into him and at that point i thought i think we all thought that he was doing really well and just to be shocked like that so it was nice have him there yeah yeah so tell us um this legacy project i mean it is it's been uh michael passed in july july mm-hmm. 20th if, if i it's recall going up on uh, yes seven months uh this this 20th this february 20th february 20th um it'll be seven months and you have you know he had this very popular channel um on youtube and of course on patreon and, and podcast form and he was at Jacobin and had all these different projects underway. Um, how did you decide to, to, to put this together? Well, uh, you know, it's it's a bit all over the place in terms of like the like you mentioned, there was a, a lot going on. Um, I think kind of like the first step. Um, I'll try and make this as concise and quick, but um, kind of the first step was you know kind of conversation between Matt, David, and I about how to like best transition out of, you know, doing, you know, the Oprah Winfrey show without Oprah. I don't, that's the lamest example I can come up with, but you know what I mean? It was, it was this like very 
challenging thing because Michael's set of politics and analysis and humor and relationships were, were very specific to Michael and no one can really do Michael's show in, in lieu of Michael. And we, we wanted to figure out a, a nice transition where we could um, set up and give Matt and David the platform and space to really um, create a show that was 100% their own and they could really dig in and, and kind of continue a lot of the work that they were doing with Michael, but, you know, not under the, the weight of, you know, it, it's really heavy that, you know, that music comes on, the graphic comes on, it's his name. It's, it's, it's quite a responsibility. And so that was kind of part of, and that worked out really beautifully. And you guys should definitely check out their work. They're they're doing a really a really great job. And then the legacy part of it was how do we? um, Michael's passing brought a lot of media attention, a lot of new people wanting to learn about him and and learn about uh, his work and who he was. And and people want to know his story. And his story as a as a young person growing up in America is a little bit of a it's both kind of a lot of people's stories and it's also a bit of an unusual story. And I want to uh, do work that I want to make a documentary film and I'm actually starting my own show about his life called The Brief and Wondrous Life of Michael Brooks um, to kind of, you know, honor and celebrate Michael, the the person. And then the, the tribute series that you mentioned is a series of roundtable discussions uh, that R- Professor Russell Spriglia, um, you know, friend of Michael's, uh, kind of had the vision to do. And he was thinking it'd be one academic weekend. And I called him, I was like, I don't think anyone wants to be on Zoom for 48 hours, but what if we, you know, make this a, a, a weekly event? And uh, we're hoping that that has, I, I jokingly refer to it as like socialist Davos. I hope that that has <laughs> an, an ongoing uh you know, like we can all gather and think about global solidarity. And I just always have Michael's voice ringing in my head. Just every person should just have dignity and respect. And, you know, I feel like that was really at the core of his, of his philosophy and his, uh, his project. So all of these different moving pieces and everyone can go and check out the Patreon. So I'm not just blabbing on and on, um, kind of those photos, man. Yeah. (laughs) Well, wow. Michael. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, can I can I talk to you a little bit about if you're comfortable with it, um just sort of Michael's growth in politics, like how how he I know you're going to touch on this with the brief and wonders life of Michael Brooks, which is just so beautiful. I, I love that. Um but I mean, as his sister, how I mean, I've, I've, I was watching him since he started the majority report and mm-hmm. knew him through many of those years and just his evolution. He just, he became, he, 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 he was just so sharp last year of his life. Like he was just so sharp and so focused. And at the same time, like spiritual, it was, it was this beautiful mm-hmm. kind of, um, you don't see a lot of that in this space. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really rough space to be in, to be honest. I mean, when you're in media, the pace is so insane, you don't have a lot of time to think and process, let alone read. Um, just personally, like that's why this idea of the book club is 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 important to me because I want to spend more time going deeper into work. And he just always, every time I talked to him, I just felt like he was always going deeper into work, deeper into his self, and keeping up with the the, the fucking insane news cycle that we're living in, mm-hmm. um, and keeping up with the show, which. 
you know, pulling back the curtain a little bit, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. And yet he found this balance to me. um, And I'm sure, you know, he was nowhere near where he wanted to go with it. But among folks that I know in this space, he handled it with a lot of grace. I mean, especially in the last year, I think, seeing how he came, came about. Yeah. You know, part of this is like, challenging to talk about I probably won't get into because that is that I think he did work too hard and he didn't you know he may be you know I I talked to a a blood specialist the other day because I share one of the um, genetic mutations that Michael had which we 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 didn't really know about as a family you know until that was passing that was that led to his passing right that's mostly, you know, it's like you uh, analyze the body and you try and figure out what causes blood clot. And then they, they found these um, two genetic mutations. But um, to, to veer away from that, because that's a whole other topic, um, you know, I was talking to a blood specialist, which one second, I talked to him on Zoom for 15 minutes. I have good health insurance. I'm very lucky. I, I get it through the Writers Guild of my, my union. The consultation before insurance was, I think, $687 for 15 minutes of talking to the doctor. And then after insurance, it was around $240. I'm in a position where this isn't going to, like, derail me. I'm not going to be able to make rent. But I was just appalled by that. So I just had to say that because I was just so livid um, that that's the reality of having good insurance. Um, Anyhow, with Michael, this was genuine for him. And, you know, Michael had really big ego, really big ambitions. I don't want to paint a a saintly like picture. He was very human. I think it's important to talk about that because I think as soon as you move into the like, you know, saint so-and-so, then you take away their humanity and it makes it like less accessible and real. And I I don't want to do that. But I will say is that this was very authentic for Michael. Like he he was always reading that like even if he wasn't doing this, even if Michael you know, worked at a gasoline station or at a bookstore, you know, did something completely, you know, had a more private life. I think his personality was always that he was just reading and ingesting the news and constantly consuming books. And that had kind of enough, it had everything to do with what he did. And it was wonderful that he was, that was his career and he was able to do it full time, but it was also just what he did. I mean, it, but it was something like, I don't know, something about the last year. I just, mm. I this, saw a different, yeah, there was yeah, like a switch. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's like weird because now it's like so pivotal, but I, I feel like, um, you, I think when you grow up um, and you have a lot of shame around like poverty or your circumstances, Sometimes when you gain success, you feel more comfortable uh, talking about that. Mm. I think being honest about the things that you used to hold as shame, I think it is mm. is freeing. And I don't think that's the only thing that was going on. But I do think Michael had a transition where he went from kind of uh, commenting on things and then he, he had started to publicly make things personal and, and speak out about that. And I think, at least with my own experience around that, it it is a huge relief it's like you're not you're no longer like kind of constantly pretending or code switching or um yeah and our society has changed i mean before and after bernie the way we talk about class the way people acknowledge the the just you know i i even when i look back at like sex in the city or entourage or these like big hbo shows from like (laughs) you know not that long ago it's like 
the idea of like this this illusion around like yeah. nor I mean you know whatever take that example as you will but like I just feel like there's been such a, a huge shift with people kind of getting more in touch with the reality of what's happening here in this country. It was it was this it was like a pseudo um, normalcy that was not. I mean, first time I moved to New York, I remember like thinking, "Wait, how did all these friends people <laughs> these right, ginormous right, apartments, right, 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 right. even with the like paleontologists the and the and the part time employee at, at Ralph Lauren have the same living exactly. uh, environment?" Yeah, it's it's. Um, but I mean, it, it's it's like such a conscious thing. It's like a, it permeates every single aspect of her society to almost trick people into thinking that you know, not only is it achievable to like live this magnificent New York lifestyle where you're buying, you know, thousand dollar Manolo Blahniks with a, you know, columnist salary in the middle of a media crisis. Um, but, but also like that you can do it and others are doing it. And if you're not doing it, then there's a shame that, you know, associated with in which, you know, it's personalized. And yeah, I think, I think he was able to kind of grasp that in a way that was different than most. Yeah. Discuss it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it's it's funky stuff, and then you also like now. I feel like the 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 switch side of it too is that at the same time you also and Michael did a really beautiful job of this. It's like there's a really big difference of growing up homeless or like never, you know, like not having any parents in your life and being on your own or being like housing, you know, uns- uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for now? Food and insecure. Um, Michael was really good at like, not like dramatizing or being like, you, you know, like my sobs, you know, he was just very like, I have a, a relationship to this because I went through these things compared to like a lot of other circumstances. I was relatively, you know, lucky and whatever. And I, I appreciated kind of like how he held that. Cause I feel like that's the flip side of it too. Like the, the mm-hmm. poverty porn of like, you know, the performativeness and that I yeah. think he kind of also was really turned off by that. So I, I really appreciated when I would, when I would watch him on his live streams on the show, personalized stuff, I was like, Oh, this is just right kind of acknowledging telling your personal way in and not overshadowing what you're covering by your own, you know, narration. Well, because the truth is, is it's, it's way more common than people like the way that sometimes right. it's illustrated in the news when someone comes out that, you know, achieves success and says, well, I was actually, you know, experienced X, Y, Z. It's like you said, it's very performative. There's like a porn aspect to it. It's almost mm-hmm. like a monetization aspect to it. Or how do we, mm-hmm. how do we expand on this and make this a thing when the truth is, the majority of people have, you know, if you if you are coming from a working class household, have faced some form of insecurity in your life, um, and it's just going to get worse. Right, Leisha. Um, if you're comfortable talking about this, like, what was Michael working on? Uh, you know, moving forward, what what was he thinking about? And yeah. I mean, that's like such a large question and there's so many people who can speak to, you know, like I can't scratch the surface of what him and Professor Richard Wolf are working on together or what, you know, like there's there's so many different categories. I do know one thing he and I spoke about a lot um, was just and I think he would have been like so bummed by what's happened this past couple of months with all this infighting and drama. But, you know, he just really wanted to normalize being on the left kind of get rid of all of these different like subcultures sub you know categories that was just I think he really 
he talked to me at least, and you know, I'm, I'm sure Matt and David and other folks would have different insight, but he talked to me about just like wanting TMBS to like, maybe not even a hundred percent be like focused on politics. And, you know, like he was really mm-hmm. trying to like expand, you know, I think he was just very aware of just like how the right just had such a chokehold yeah. on, on, on the normal. Um, and that's not to like, you know, glorify dysfunction or ugly. I'm, I'm not like trying to use normal as like a caveat for ugly uh, societal problems. I'm just saying like the, the accessibility yeah. um, was just something that was like, he was really aware of. And I don't know. I mean, the last conversation we had was the about 14 hours before he died, we FaceTimed. He, he seemed completely fine. I mean, he was like a little tired. Um, and, and I had been to a, a protest or, and, um, I was just trying, I was just talking to him. I was like, what, what happens after this? What's the next strategy? Like, you know, the uprising's kind of dying down, you know, the police have kind of like figured out their gridlock on this. Like what, is it stopping commerce anymore? Is it, do, you know, what, and he was like, yeah, I, I don't know. We, we have to figure out the next thing. This is kind of the end of this, but we never, I didn't, you know, I had no idea he was going to die the next day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, in terms of the legacy project, can you talk a little bit about what you've, what you've touched on with this project? Who's appeared, who's in the works? Yeah. So, um, the legacy project is kind of like the overarching, like, you know, it's kind of like what, you know, when, when someone passes away, it's very obvious what to do with their like personal, um, social media or what, you know, it kind of just like becomes like a tune, you know, it's like, it's, it's done. Like they've, um, past, you know, it's private, but with Michael and and TMBS and the amount of global community um, that he had built up and the amount of kind of virtual grieving, it felt like creating a foundation or something in his honor felt important. And then it kind of became obvious that he had already created it. He He had built a digital community. And then it's like, how do you you know, it, 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 it's, it's very complicated stuff. It's like, how do you honor someone and their work, stay relevant, not ever like use his image for like some agenda or some purpose that yeah. isn't in line with what, um, you know, he was about, which right now is easy to do. Cause it's like the people who are closest to him do have that, uh, access and, and ability, you know, it's kind of thinking about like if it goes long-term or if things, you know, whatever that's a whole other thing but the tribute series um which i think is what you're asking about Mm -hmm. uh is available on the tmbs youtube it's i think it's going to end up being about a 14 part series um there's three more that will be released publicly the the patrons get um early access Mm -hmm. to the panels and we've really ran the gamut of different topics we started with um Dr. Cornell West and Slavoj Zizek um, going back and forth about the future of the left um, and also, you know, chatting about Michael. It's it's a really wonderful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You guys are on it. Um, There's a playlist and it has all of the. um, Yeah, you can see Waz Lambre and Anna Kasparian were on. Nomiki hosted a a real. Honestly, I really want everyone to check it out there. It's uh, on sex and gender on the left. And it was such a great um, discussion. So good. I need to start clipping a lot of them. I know people don't always watch the the full discussion. We we have a lot of we have a lot of clipping to do. Um, But 
they're they're just kind of various topics and some of them are more like quite you know literally aligned in parts of michael's project and work mm-hmm. and kind of you know uh we just had one with jeremy johnson brent cooper and a good friend of and a, you know advisor michael's ben Beish, and they kind of very literally sort of looked at one of his last live streams and kind of used that as a jumping off wow. point to continue discussing some stuff that he had put out maybe about four days before his passing. And then some of them are, are like, you know, like the sex and gender one, you know, Michael obviously wasn't like a particularly like focused on that in his work. That wasn't so much a part of his project, but in terms of like being really like deeply interested in the, in supporting people globally and not uh, letting, you know, identity get in get in the way of truly supporting uh folks are, are actually you know in, in my mind actually being a feminist and, and what that means in terms of paying people yes um is is uh was absolutely part of his project so um it was it was really wonderful to thank you for hosting you did a, a beautiful job well, with that thank you i mean first off thank you for thinking about it and and, and thinking of me i mean what i i really appreciate about that is is even in my own personal conversations with Michael about there, I mean, there were some moments <laughs> where we didn't always agree on things and it was always intellectual. It was never a personal thing. It was just sort of an intellectual exercise where he even broke my, like I had to think about things in a different perspective. And these are really tough questions. Like the Elizabeth Warren question, for instance, like, was she, mm. you know, <laughs> I love, you and I are both like, <laughs> I don't like, think um, but anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I always thought that Joe Biden was the biggest threat to Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I, I actually didn't feel like Warren was dividing the left as much as many felt. But it was an emotional experience. And I think a lot of people were wrapped up in yeah. it. So we kind of went back and forth on it a few times. But, you know, and, and I obviously came at it from a, a perspective of being a woman and like, look, at there are all these other people who are stealing mm-hmm. votes from Bernie and we're not. But it was it was like part political, part and just your own experience. But he was very open to having those conversations. Yeah. I think for Michael, it's just that he was really, he just was really dogmatic about analysis. Like it wasn't, he like, it really genuinely had nothing to do with Elizabeth Warren being a woman. It was the fact that she was trying to run in this ultra progressive lane. And it just wasn't adding up what she was saying versus right. what she was doing. The whole, like, you know, Bernie and I are in this together and the attack, like, it was just, it wasn't in line with the, you know, and I'm not saying that Michael was some sort of like, do, you know, like, Oh, this is good. And, you know, it's just, he actually just really was pushing for a, a change in this country. And he did not see Elizabeth Warren being authentic and right. in, in that, um, you know, I, I, I've also probably spent a lot of time arguing with Michael. The annoying thing is, is that he usually was right. And it's actually, well, almost always was right. But the, our last conversation, we almost started to kind of get into a fight about something. I can't remember. We were, we were kind of like, you know, knocking heads. And then he said, like, and I think I've said this before on, on YouTube somewhere, but I'll say it again. And he, he said, like, well, do you want me to explain it to you or not? And I said, and I was about to like, you'd be like, you know, and then I thought about it for like one second and I was like, no, I actually do want you to explain it to me because I'm you, I think you are probably right about this, but I'm missing a beat. And, you know, he explained whatever it was and, and his like reason for why he thought that and X, Y, and Z based on, you know, facts. And I was like, or okay. history or something. I mean, or history that, or yeah. 
that was like the great thing about having debates with him. And it didn't, honestly, I don't think I debated him that often. I mean, it's, it's mm. like debating, I rarely debate Sam. I rarely mm-hmm. debate Michael. I think there's something, there's a basis for our, our political theory. Like it's coming from some sort of basis and we don't always agree on everything and we have mm. different personalities, but um, that one was interesting to me because his, ba- his thoughts were based in a very like, like a respectable uh, perspective. Mm. Mine was based on gender and like political numbers game. Mm-hmm. His was based on like, well, this is what the left should be. If I'm, if, if I'm saying this right. And she's sort of like tainting that, but I was mm. like, but it's not real. And it was like a brand. Yeah. It was. Yeah. I mean, I think for him, it was just like, do we need to, I think he saw her as part of the like diversifying the rolling class, like, yeah. you know, shiny, shiny, uh, you know, women st- stay in your place. One of you is up there representing you. Uh, exactly. Diaspora, you know, which I, is right. I, also very true. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in L.A. working in entertainment, I mean, mm-hmm. I I was uh, oftentimes during throughout all this, like the idea of like not being with Lauren was like, you know, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Like, what do you like go home and like sign up to be like declitterized like what's wrong you know like I you know it was like unthinkable like you know what kind of self-hating you know I joke like the the secret like Taliban wives of the Bernie brothers like, <laughs> I was just like absolutely you need a voice for that though you got to a voice yeah. oh the impersonation well not not of the Taliban wives of the, like, the elite we'll class say that for Michael no, no. <laughs> the like like the Hollywood elites telling you these things. Like. I mean, it's just, it's not even, it wasn't even always, the, the thing that I think people don't even sometimes realize on the Bernie side of it is a lot of it was like, you know, there's this like really beat up car on my block that's covered in, in Pete Buttigieg's sticker. Oh my God. <laughs> it's not like necessarily like always, it's, it's like more just like PMC values, even if you're like barely clinging on to yeah, having a, a good income or even if you're working these kind of like, you know, salaried, you, you know, uh, highly credentialed jobs, but you're still getting paid nothing. Right. But you're in in line with uh, the right kind of feminism and the right kind of, you know, identity, status, yeah. identity signaling. Don't worry. Just tell that guy that Pete Buttigieg will take care of all transportation for everybody. So that I, I literally can't. I, I'm worried now. People are gonna know where I live because I feel like this is <laughs> this must be an outlier. But I'm always just like I look at that car. I'm just like, what is happening? <laughs> like, what is just this? Leave a little note. <laughs> it it never her. ceases to amaze me. No, I I think it's uh, him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's actually Pete Buttigieg's mom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she was evicted during the, the Wi-Fi and the sewer uh, free house zoning situation. Yeah, horrible thing, yeah. yeah. Leisha, I, I love having conversations with you. Um, if you're open to it, I'd love to have you back on and we could talk a little bit more about feminism. I know you have a lot of thoughts and you have your own political perspective, but I feel like this was a really great opportunity for everybody to kind of learn about what's happening with um, Michael's legacy and what you're doing to honor his work. And it's beautiful. And also it's like you have your own career and life and this, and now you have to, you've been putting michael's legacy you know equally as important in 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 your life in terms of time so i I appreciate that yeah can i say one last thing of course um 
I'm, I listen to a lot of Democracy Now! She's like, you have three seconds. <laughs> um, I, you know, Michael and I had a lot of plans to collaborate together, and we were we kind of worked in parallel uh, career, you know, paths. And I think Michael was trying to figure out how to make something entirely of his own, on his own grounds, and make it more mainstream. And I've spent a lot of time, you know, trying to figure out how to make things that you are working with Netflix or Disney or whatever, and trying to, you know. Pull what's what's possible in, in those realms, and we always planned on on making collaborating on films or documentaries. And Michael was really pushing me to start my own podcast. So some of this is kind of like my last way of ever getting to in any way collaborate with my brother. Mm. So it's maybe in some ways like it's like something that I always thought was going to happen, and now it's happening in this wow. really challenging way. Um, but it feels like my last chance to like make it happen. So I'm, I'm grateful for the, the wonderful fans and friends and community that he built that is, is supporting that. Um, and in some ways it feels like kind of like a, a gift from him. Um, so, yeah. We love Michael so much. I mean, personally, he made such a big impact on my life. I mean, you know, he, not only were we friends before I ran for office and then we'd go on his show and, and at Majority Report, but he like showed up to everything um, in the middle of the worst winter in New York, uh, campaigning for me and believing in me and having conversations. And, and then afterwards showing up for so many different candidates and having him on his show and just giving people a chance and, you know, practicing what he preached on the ground. And that's not happening enough in uh, media just in general, mm-hmm. and definitely not enough in, in this media space that we live in. And so I, Thank you. Just thank you for for living this out and gifting his fans and the world now that has, I mean, so many people, as you mentioned at the top, um, learned about Michael. And unfortunately, with his passing um, being such a big story, but they're learning about him now. And so, you know, we're just grateful to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for um, inviting me on the show. And uh, yeah, just just trying to get smarter and, and build better analysis now that Michael's gone. So yeah. also on my own path. I definitely do not know everything by any means feel like every day I'm, I'm expanding what I knew and what I thought. So if I said anything insane over the last uh, 20 minutes, forgive me. We're, we're all, uh, we're all growing and I might have a completely different take tomorrow. This is Femme Friday. That was like a very gender thing to say. You are brilliant. What, what would Michael do? Would Michael ever say that? No, no, but Michael did like authentically like he was more of an expert in some of the, you know what I mean? Like there are well, the things I like more yeah. expertise and I feel like it's just been like an unusual situation where like, uh, you know, I've said this before too. It's like, I feel like I kind of like went on this show to kind of hold my brother's space and I immediately was like in the space where everyone thought I was like way smarter and way stupider than I am. And I, I just, I mean, I literally like sometimes at the beginning of the week will listen to something or read something by the end of the week have like a, a like right now I'm like really getting deep into the difference of like you know direct action and 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 like helping a cause versus like charity you know just like the yeah. inner workings of like virtue signaling versus um actually spreading awareness you know like I'm just trying to get like cleaner on these things I feel like Michael was just innately just I, I don't know just had like really sharp uh analysis and all of it well, it was his life's work, so yeah, okay. you know, don't beat yourself up. Oh, We're all learning. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Lisa Brooks, we love you. Come back on. Yeah, Let's talk yeah, politics together. 
Okay, uh, sorry. No, <laughs> that was a fun Friday. That would have been. The, the oh my God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, yeah, you're sorry. sorry. I'm sorry. Thank you We're for sorry. having Wait, me. What? Sorry. <laughs> that I came on. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll leave. Dorsey's laughing. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Alicia Brooks. All right, bye. <laughs> we'll be right back with uh, Natalie Shore and Esperanza Fonseca to talk about today's news. You're watching Femme Friday on the majority. The majority. Oh my God. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> on the Stop it, it's a majority report on it. <laughs> All right, you're watching the Nomiki show. I just gave a shout out to another show. <laughs> Very fun Friday. Thank you all. We'll be right back with Natalie Shore and Esperanza Fonseca. <laughs> Hello, welcome back to the Nomiki show. I don't know how many of you guys uh, follow these CBD companies, but. I have been consuming CBD for a while now, uh, and Sunset Lake CBD is my favorite by far. Uh, you may know about it through the majority report, which we mentioned at the top. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned company, and they ship uh, craft CBD products directly from their small little farm to your door. I received an amazing shipment over the holidays. I'm going to tell you about it in a second, but I want you guys to know that they offer... Uh, all different types of products. They offer tinctures, gummies, salves, and coffee, like actual coffee with CBD in it, all designed to help you with stress, aches, pains. I do a lot of walking. I do a lot of sitting. I do a lot of yoga. I have a lot of stress. I am not joking. It has helped me. Um, in ways that I will <laughs> tell you about in a second. Uh, they are originally from, they, they have a dairy farm that was originally part of the Ben and Jerry's, like Bernie Ben and Jerry's in Vermont. And they decided to diversify and grow premium hemp from that farm. So they went from a dairy farm to a hemp farm. Customers uh, support sustainable agriculture that enhances these rural economies that we all fight for and creates meaningful employment in that community. Their minimum wage is automatically at $15 an hour. Uh, their employees own the majority of the company and they support independent media like our show, like the David Pakman show, like the majority report. So I got a package uh, in the winter and <laughs> it was a fast fave in our family, uh, like in our entire household. Let's start off with the gummies. I took a couple of gummies to go to sleep and I have a lot of sleeping issues. I'm probably sharing a little bit too much, but I have insomnia, chronic insomnia. And truthfully, like I do these own tinctures on my own. I'll put like valerian and, and all melatonin, all these things together to help me go to sleep. I took a couple gummies. I had the deepest sleep of my life. Let, let me just tell you how much I have an issue with sleeping. I got a, a monitor on my, my, one of these wrist monitors to see how my sleep is. It'll show you how much of your sleep has been interrupted. Did you toss and turn? Did you wake up? With the gummies, my sleep has gone almost entirely interrupted. I've had more deeper sleep all because of these CBD gummies. They also have this amazing tincture, which Dorsey, I think you've been using some of the, uh, some of the products as well. Do you want to tune in here? I yeah. I, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. <laughs> okay, yeah, I uh, I absolutely love the tincture. Uh, have a couple droppers of that before bed, and it gives me a good restful sleep. Um, you know, I 
usually tried to go to sleep with the other stuff, the, you know, the not CBD stuff. And, you know, of course it put me to sleep, but like, it would always just knock me out and I never had good restful sleep. And this stuff is amazing. And it's funny about the coffee. My, my partner is a huge po- coffee snob and we got some of the, the coffee and I tried and tried and tried to get her to try it. And she finally tried it and she loved it. So it's actually good tasting coffee and, you know, gives you a nice chill day with that coffee buzz. Yeah, my mom, um, we we had some coffee and then she ended up using it all <laughs> as well as the gummies. I'm just going to say, like, if you can't keep something in your house, like I tried to hide the gummies. I also am addicted to the gummies. So I started just like popping them in the middle of the day and chilling out because I am high like octane all the time. Um, but she also used all of the coffee and now they have this fudge. I don't know if you've heard about the fudge Dorsey, but they have a new chocolate fudge, uh, which is perfect for Valentine's. So I'm going to break that open probably on a Sunday. That's Valentine's day. Yeah. I'm going to break it open to chill out instead of having my two glasses of wine. Oh, that was the other thing. I didn't mention this. I did dry January. And so this was amazing. Cause like I, I will drink wine just to take the edge off at the end of the day. And this was a perfect way for me to do so. So go check out sunset, Lake CBD. We have a promo offer. Uh, if you sign up and use the promo code, know me. Yes. As an N O M I you get 20, percent off of your entire order that's at sunsetlakecbd.com the information's in the info section if you want to go straight to the website it's sunsetlakecbd.com promo code nomi 20 percent off the order that's a huge huge deal all right we'll be right back in two seconds with esperanza fonseca and natalie shore Welcome back to the Nomi He Show. I'm excited to have our recurring guests for Fem Friday. Uh, we have Esperanza Fonseca. She has been on the show before. She is a an organizer. Uh, she is an, a member of Affirm. She's a labor and policy organizer. And Affirm is a transnational feminist organization. Uh, thank you for joining us, Esperanza. And we have Natalie Shore, who is a writer, and she's head of research for Adam Ruins Everything. Um, she's appeared in BuzzFeed, The Atlantic, The Nation, In These Times, Jacobin, blah, blah, blah. You've read her. She's amazing. You can also see her on Twitter. She writes all the time. Um, <laughs> thank you all for joining us today, and thanks for sticking around because we've had a, a, a crazy show. Lots of news. All right, so... Um, <laughs> we, I, I want to start off with, uh, something that's not necessarily related directly to Femme Friday, but, uh, is related to the political world that we may be evolving into. Um, we start off the show talking about like how truth is, has changed, how truth is being, uh, disseminated in different ways. And Steve Bannon has been a big part of this. There was a video I watched yesterday with Steve Bannon and the pillow guy, Mike Lindell. And I know this sounds funny, but I play it because they're putting a lot of energy into this guy. And if he's appearing on Steve Bannon's show, my theory is it's like one of their next bets. Like they're trying to figure out, they're scrambling to figure out who's the next Trump, how are we going to continue this legacy? Can we play that clip real quick? So I think we've got a couple of uh, pictures and clips uh, we want to show at the very beginning. I'd like you to respond to those so then we can kind of get into the film and, and, and people can understand this really this beatdown you're getting from the mainstream media and the beatdown you're getting from the uh, big tech oligarchs. 
Can we play show the first? Can we show the first picture? Yeah. Now this picture here, you everyone's got to realize. <clears throat> I knew nothing. Um, can we? I'm sorry. Start that over. I'll just keep. I just keep talking. If, okay. Um, Mike Lindell did not understand how live media works, <laughs> which we understand really well. Um, and this is the guy who's like having a effing public meltdown, and who's like. Tom, Donald Trump's like last hope, I guess. He's like the last advisor, the last person uh, defending him. But seeing him pair up with Steve Bannon gave me a little bit of a concern in terms of like, this is not going away anytime soon. Natalie, I know you're following this pretty closely. You're following what's happening in the the fascistic leaning world. Um, where do you think it goes from here? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I, it's it's good that there aren't many people publicly sticking by Trump at this point. I mean, I think that, you know, whether or not they would has less to do with their conscience and more to do with how politically useful they think it is. And so I do think it's uh, a good thing that people don't find it politically useful right now. I mean, I think that that's, you know, the bare minimum of what Democrats and anyone who's opposed to uh, Trump should be shooting for right now. Uh, but you are right that the fact that he's, you know, that Lindell and to some degree uh, Trump as well, and he does still have a sizable base, if not, you know, allies within the actual uh, political class. Um, I think that the fact that by uh, Bannon might be enjoying some, you know, resurgent credibility uh, among those people is a concern. Um, I mean, I think that Bannon is very closely related to the alt-right, uh, which is a faction of the Republican Party and the right overall that wouldn't have as much power as it does if it weren't for the fact that this is a party that is, you know, um, seeking unfettered oligarchy as its sole goal, which isn't a very popular thing. And so as a result, I think that they do lean very hard into things like uh, racism and nationalism, uh, which gives these people more power than they ever should have. And pseudopopulism too, uh, right, Esperanza? I mean, Steve, Steve Bannon has, <clears throat> across the world, uh, pushed forward a pseudo populism on the right that has tried to, you know, pull some folks in the working class around the world, depending on what the geopolitical situation in those countries are. But they've won seats, they've won presidencies, they've won uh, positions in power globally. And as much as we mock, at, you know, this this pillow guy, <laughs> uh, the reality is we mock Donald Trump, too. So, you know, for us as a working class, like, how do we make sure that we we keep pressure on Biden, but also understand what's happening on the right now that we've seen a taste of it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think that once again, it's really important for us to consider ourselves to be anti-fascist, that we name these people for what they are. They are fascists. They're not fascists of the 1930s variety, but they're fascists of, uh, you know, the contemporary world. And so one, I think it is important that part of our community self-defense against fascism is to deplatform fascists, deplatform their leaders. That includes Steve Bannon and everyone that they're associated with. However, at the same time, I think we also need to be careful about falling into this uh, trap in believing that uh, fascism and what, you know, some people might call Trumpism, which I personally don't like that term because I think it uh, blames him when uh, it ignores that, you know, there is a whole fascistic movement behind him. Um, and and uh, I think we need to recognize that it's not going away. You know, fascist upsurges don't just happen randomly. They're connected to economic crises. And so we need to look at what's uh, going on beneath the surface. 
Um, so meanwhile, and, and I, I couldn't agree more, like there's, there's a tie. I mean, obviously racism exists, sexism exists, misogyny is something that's just always present. Uh, but when there are these upsurges, the, the meaning behind them and sometimes the excuse to go to them um, is much stronger. Meanwhile, uh, this week in Alabama, Amazon workers are organizing a vote. Um, doesn't happen immediately. Uh, this is, a, you know, after a trend of a presidential campaign, Bernie Sanders pushing back against Amazon. Amazon workers who've organized in New York and other parts of the country uh, in reaction to how Amazon has treated workers in the middle of a pandemic. Let's play this clip with labor reporter Kim Kelly, who uh, frequents the show as well. Every worker needs a union, but workers here really need a union. I talked to one of the first people who made the, one of those original calls to RWDSU and asked them to get involved. And he just said, you know, I feel like it's my job to make things better. Like we deserve better and I want to do what I can to help us get there. And, you know, Alex Press had a really great article in the New Republic the other day just about the deeper labor history in Bessemer, because Bessemer is a union town, and that's a rarity in a state that's, you know, as blood red and Republican led, and I'm not trying to rhyme, and right to work in a right to work state in Alabama. Like, this is the kind of place that Bezos runs to. You know, like he got ran out of Queens. Queens didn't want him. So they thought, you know, what are the kind of places where a plant like that, where a facility like, like this would be welcome, where we can bring good jobs and operate with zero actual oversight? And it's places like Bessemer, Alabama, which is an impoverished town. It's predominantly black. It's there's a crime problem. There are very few resources. There are very few options for folks here. Amazon likes to present itself as the best game in town. But like you mentioned, there's already this history of organizing. There are other unionized warehouses and poultry plants in the area where workers are making more money than they make at Amazon. Like there is a precedent here. And, you know, it could have, we say, you could say it could have happened anywhere, but I don't know, just feel, it does feel like a, like a particularly special place for it to be kicking off. Because if workers here in Bessemer, Alabama can pull this off, that means workers anywhere in the country can mm -hmm. you know once this first domino falls it's anybody's game what do you think Esperanza? is 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 this a sign that this could happen anywhere and that it's happening fast enough i mean this is such a monopoly this is such a huge 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 company that uh if they fail in one region or i mean even if they do unionize there might be a whole other fight that comes forward uh, in the coming months and weeks. But is this something that can be duplicated across other parts of the South that might have some labor background or not? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, I don't, I, I think that, again, sort of back to the earlier question, um, the, the best defense against fascism is an organized working class, right? And so this is part of uh, what we need to be doing to fight fascism, right? Organizing the working class in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, et cetera. However, at the same time, a lot of uh, what I've noticed within the labor movement is that we tend to uh, you know, go for these like big fish, right? Like Amazon, Walmart, et cetera. And sometimes when we have not built our forces enough uh, by frying the little fish, it can be hard to win the big fish. And so uh, I am 
uh, optimistic that they will win their union. I hope they win their union. Um, but I think that we need to understand that with labor organizing and all organizing, we are going to experience some failure. The point is we have to learn from that and continue building momentum from that. And eventually we will win big uh, and, and we will win for the working class. Natalie, just pivoting a little bit. I mean, we're we're in a new administration, and Jeff Bezos has has stepped down uh, from his leadership role. Not entirely; he's going to be on the board. He'll still be involved, of course. Uh, but they have faced some setback, even under the Trump administration. Now you're going to have a new, uh, you know, National Labor Relations Board. You'll have there's a new presidency, in which. Who knows? I mean, maybe he will lean more worker focused, given the fact that we're in a pandemic and a global economic crisis. Uh, But (laughs) who's to say? I mean, do you think that there's there's an opportunity here to kind of use this this disgusting Amazon because they have been pressuring workers, they've been intimidating workers, they've been buying ads. I mean, it is a bad campaign. It looks bad for Amazon. Do you think there's movement? There's a, a way for progressives and and organizers to push back um, and get Biden to to take a more active role. Uh, there's That's always okay. a way to push back, right? And the answer of how to push back, as Esperanza said, is is the same under you know Biden or any other president. I think that you know it might be more difficult or less difficult depending on some of the political factors that you mentioned. But ultimately, this is going to be a push that has to come from an organized workforce. It's going to have to come from below. Uh, so that's going to be the same answer, irrespective of what the political conditions are at the top. And I think that the best we can hope for is, will it get a bit easier for them? And, you know, I think the answer is it's, it's not easy. This is an immensely difficult thing in any circumstance. Uh, I, I do hope it does get somewhat easier, uh, but I don't want to suggest that this is an easy thing. Uh, it's, it's something that, you know, we understand how these things work. We understand that this needs to come from workers, uh, but it's difficult to do. Um, and I, you know, I, I really hope that they have a lot of solidarity on their side. And, and, you know, we're covering this every day on the show pretty regularly. So we'll see um, as these votes roll out. But yeah, they're spending a lot of money, a lot of money on ads, on intimidation, on setting meetings, on on trying to block, block votes from happening uh, by mail, <laughs> if that doesn't sound familiar, but hoping that they come through with the win. And then they're going to have a whole other set of fights. Uh, so we'll see. Before we wrap up, um, I want to talk about the $15 minimum wage because the fact that this is even being debated is like disgusting to me at this stage when the fight for 15 has been going on for a decade. And and in my opinion, 15 anywhere, I mean, nobody can survive off of $15 minimum wage and, and live in a one-bedroom apartment in this country. That is a report uh, that has been published by conservative outlets as well as, you know, more mainstream outlets, meaning Wall Street Journal, uh, National Review, et cetera. So why would someone like Kirsten Cinema or Joe Manchin fight against the, be opposed to the $15 minimum wage? That's the big question, if it's going to, you know, go through Congress. Well, it turns out that wasn't always the case. From 2014, Kirsten Sinema says a full-time minimum wage earner makes less than $16,000 a year. This one's a no-brainer. <laughs> Tell Congress to raise the wage. I mean, this is like, I, I, I don't know. I, I can't believe we're sitting in this this place right now where Kirsten Sinema, who 
ran as a progressive when she was in the legislature. She was the most progressive member of the state legislature in Arizona, is now lining up to be the most conservative, if second most conservative, or if not the first, you know most conservative member of the Senate. What what can we like? Where do we go from here? How? Why is there not a bigger uproar about this? Esperanza, like what? All this work, save our Senate, like. John Ossoff agrees with us. <laughs> what? Yeah. I mean, you know, Nomiki, this is why I think that having a real left on this country, not a left that is beholden to a party of big capital like the Democratic Party, is so important because what we see is that people start off progressive. They make these promises. And then over time, they become more and more beholden to big capital. And so once again, I think that, you know, trusting these politicians to do the right thing is not our job. Um, our job is to organize workers, period, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, etc. Ultimately, wages and the minimum wage, like I said last time, is determined by one thing, and that is class struggle. We have to organize ourselves so that we can tip the odds of that struggle in our favor. And whatever some, you know, uh, politician says, whatever they go back on won't matter because our power is organized and it is uh, stable and it is cemented. Natalie, I mean, like, what, what infuriates me the most about this is when you hear politicians like this say, well, it's because my district is conservative or it's because I live in Arizona. And, you know, you just had Mark Kelly, who's by no means progressive at all. Um, he's not he, he like quickly adjusted, quickly adjusted from being like another holdout senator to lining up with the majority of centrist Democrats. Like this excuse, I, don't, I, I just don't see it working anymore, especially since Arizona turned blue. Um, but but. I mean, do you think that, like, she's young, she has a career ahead of her, like, why? What, what's your judgment here? Um, I mean, I, I think that the $15 minimum wage is one of those rare issues where um, trying to pressure and embarrass politicians solely through, you know, control and manipulation of the discourse and through media is effective. Um, you, you know, I, I do think, obviously, an organized working class is... Uh, how we're going to win justice ultimately. Uh, and it is, you know, the best way toward it. It's going to be what gets them the best deal. And I think that we should also, you know, in that same vein, remember that $15 is an important minimum wage, but it's not a living wage. And since that demand kind of, you know, coalesced over the past couple of years, $15 is worth a lot less now. So, uh, you know, it's not as good as what an organized militant working class would get for themselves. Um, but the, you know, the campaign is fairly popular, uh, as far as I understand. I mean, it's, you know, shocking that there are any Democratic holdouts. I think even, you know, conservative districts, individual conservatives aren't necessarily against uh, minimum wage. Obviously, capital and business owners are. Um, but, you know, the idea that, oh, my constituents, well, you know, your constituents are the people who live and vote in your district. And those aren't the people that are opposing this thing. But, uh, you know, the Fight for 15 campaign, uh, what I was saying initially, has largely been waged through the media. Um, you know, there have been some very important workers involved. Don't get me wrong. But it's not... Um, you know, a, a collective organizing campaign in the same way that, uh, you know, the Amazon fight is. Uh, it's been, you know, very much waged through uh, media. 
and, you know, through discourse. And so I think that it has been a model uh, that we've been able to see it has worked in some unlikely places. You know, Florida famously just passed a $15 minimum wage. So I think this is, you know, one of those issues where uh, some pressure from the middle or top is, you know, more useful than it is for for certain other issues. So I guess that's, you know, all we can do at this point. As for Kristen Sinema uh, and, you know, how she she went from being a Green Party activist to one of the most moderate Democrats in the Senate, I, I can't speak to that. I imagine that it has to do with, uh, you know, how she ingrained herself into the political and capital class over time. Uh, I don't know what's going on in her head, but, you know, she's she's not legislating like the uh, pink haired <laughs> person that she's prevented, presented herself as. So, you know, um, I think that she might be subject to pressure on this in a way that other people have. And, you know, that's that's what I can hope. But she's a woman, guys, so it's all negated. <laughs> Natalie Schur, Esperanza Fonseca, thank you so much for joining us again on this Friday. Uh, hope to see you again very soon. And to everybody else who's been joining us on Twitch, I was, I was told, what was I told to say? Hang on, there was something I was supposed to say on Twitch. Help me out here, Dorsey. This is a thing that I was told to say on Twitch. Oh, yeah, this is a nice little a pogger. Say the word, just, Kyle tells me, uh, no, no, just, yeah, to say, not pug, pog. <laughs> oh, oh, pog. Pogger to the Twitch audience, and everyone laughed at me, so I'm not sure. Whatever, make fun of me. <laughs> I don't understand this, okay? <laughs> I'm not a gamer, but the Twitchers told me to say pogger, so pogger. But if you want to know a game that I do like, it's Frogger. I played that when I was like in middle school. I'm really into Frogger. Um, all right. Thanks to everybody who's on Twitch at Twitch.tv uh, and those on YouTube, of course, all of our chatters, uh, everybody who submitted questions. Northern Lights, let's take a look at this. Live from Norway sends Northern Lights Dragon says, I love progressive shows and I'm looking for more female voices. You are so important and so needed. You inspire me. Love from Norway. Love to you as well. We're trying to change this ecosystem have more female voices, change uh, the viewership as well, which is pretty strong when it comes to um, being overwhelmingly male. So if you're a guy and you know some women that might be interested in watching these shows, bring them on over. We're trying to change how the algorithm works. We're trying to like fuck the system a little bit here. Um, All right, what other... Okay, we have Inconsen sending their love. Nomiki, I have a proposition for you. When you hit 75K and then 100K, you stream a game on Twitch. Oh, that's a good incentive. For 75K, it's Among Us. At 100, it's Monster Hunter World. I can even play with you as a gaming buddy. I'm down. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, also, Nomiki, I'm curious, what is your connection to Gamergate? You can answer at the end, but during your last Fem Friday with Anna, you brought it up and it seemed like you had a personal connection to it. What happened? No, I didn't. I didn't have any personal connection. I just have been reading a lot more about it. I've been interviewing folks about how this like weird, um, just like how the Red Brown Alliance sort of formed and how some of these fascistic, like uh, how the media uh, has exacerbated 
uh, the far right. And I've interviewed a few like historians and people who research this. And there's a big tie back to Gamergate and the misogyny from Gamergate. Maybe I'll bring one of them on to talk more about that specific angle, because I do think it's fascinating for a Femme Friday. And Constant also says, RIP Michael. He was a true legend. He was a dear friend. And Gypsy Mama sends her love. Or rumor, this is just my second donation ever to any of my sub channels. Thank you. In honor of Michael, thank you for sharing your stories with us today, Alicia. Uh, thank you so much, Orb Rumor. And Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska. Michael was the first person I ever talked to on the online left and have to say that he was very warm and inviting. Miss our blues brother, Brooks, but feel fortunate to have spoken with him. Y'all rock. Thank you. And Lee, Socialist Davos is one of the... <laughs> is one of the best oxymorons I've ever heard in some time. Also look forward to Fem Fun Half next Tuesday with you and Emma's sport takes. Oh my God, my sport takes. It's basically Emma's, Emma's sport takes and me just being like, do, 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 tennis? <laughs> like some pop culture or political reference. That's all I have for sports. Uh, Craven James. And it's embarrassing, by the way, because I grew up in Buffalo, which is like the ultimate sports town. It's like Boston and Buffalo. I mean, that's their, Buffalo is just sports. And I am not that person. I was like sitting there with a book, like doing arts and crafts while everybody was watching the Super Bowl because it was an experience growing up. I lived through the four Super Bowls uh, that Buffalo and Dallas Cowboys. And I think like, what's the Florida, Florida Marlins, were they in? Or is that, that's baseball? I don't know. (laughs) See what I'm saying? I don't even know. Uh, Craven James says, phenomenal interview with Leisha Brooks. Love hearing her perspective on politics on the left. Hope to see her again on the on the majority <laughs> on the majority or the Nomiki show. What was that? Where did that come from? Man. Thanks to Harvey K. Always in the chat room, mixing it up on YouTube and Twitch. Harvey switched to Twitch today, I just learned, and yesterday, because it's on his iPad. And Twitch is really good with the iPad, I was told. And big thank you to Mario Q for working those algorithms. And as always, our moderators, Bob Choken and The Orb and Chuck Diesel, all on YouTube, and Dorian Sapiens in A Difficult Truth, and Nug Wrangler on Twitch for keeping that ch- tra- chat room troll free. Chat room troll free. Say that 10 times fast. Oh, wait, one last one. JL says, thank you for the stream today, Nomi Key. Keep up the good work. Midi Docs, you're the best. Always there. Doing the, the Lord's work. The Lord, the, the algorithm, YouTube, Lord's work. That's what this is. We love you guys. Uh, We will see you on Tuesday, live, same time, same place. And shout out to all of our patrons and everybody listening to us on podcast. Be well, stay in solidarity. 